If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Statues have been in the news around the world, but statues of medieval figures haven't featured prominently in the debates. Why not? Well, our content director, Dr. Dave Musgrove, called Dr. Simon John of Swansea University to discuss this question and to talk specifically about the equestrian statue of Richard the Lionheart, which stands outside the Palace of Westminster in London. 
Today, I'm talking to Dr. Simon John, Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of Swansea and an expert on the socio-cultural impact of the Crusades in Latin Christendom. He's currently engaged in a project entitled Contested Pasts, Public Monuments and Historical Culture in Western Europe, 1815 to 1930, which is funded by the British Academy and the uh, Leverhulme Trust. And that is exploring the political uses of monuments and statues in 19th century European states. So you might have heard there's been a bit of debate recently over the rights and wrongs of statues around the world. Famously, uh, statues of 18th century slave traders like Edward Colston have been deplatformed for their role in the slave trade. Uh, there's conversations going on about Confederate general statues in the US, and also conversations have commenced about whether figures from earlier in history, such as Sir Francis Drake, ought to be taken down for their involvement in the developing slave trade in the 16th century. But there has not been much discussion uh, of taking this process earlier back in time. Medieval statues have been largely ignored thus far. So uh, I'm going to chat to Simon about this now. He has two hats here, as I said, one as a medievalist and one as a researcher of statues. So an ideal person to talk to about where statues of medieval figures sit or stand in this debate. And we're going to frame it around a conversation about King Richard I and a statue that commemorates his reign. So uh, Simon, thank you for joining us. Good, good to be here. Great. Okay, so firstly, can you tell us uh, about this statue of Richard I? Where is it? What is it? And uh, how did it get to where it is? Sure. So the statue, um, as it stands today, is in Old Palace Yard, which is one of the kind of spaces outside the Palace of Westminster, uh, better known as the Houses of Parliament. Uh, essentially, it's not far from the the entrance to the Houses, uh, the House of Lords. Um, it was uh, the creation of uh, a sculptor who was born in Italy, but raised in France by the name of Carlo Marochetti. And he was an artist who was resident in France up to the revolutions of 1848. And the repercussions of, of that revolution forced him to um, move to London. Uh, and a few years later, he created the first version of the statue uh, in order for it to be displayed at the Great Exhibition uh, in London in 1851. So it was it was well received the, the sculpture at the exhibition, and in the years afterwards, throughout the 1850s, there was a campaign uh, widely supported by prominent politicians. Um, the most prominent supporters were uh, Victoria and Albert themselves uh, to sponsor the creation of a permanent version of this sculpture of Richard, um, and it's this that was eventually cast in bronze, uh, installed in Old Palace Yard in um, uh, 1860. And it's, it's, it's a pretty big statue, isn't it? It, it? Very much so. So from the base of the pedestal, the granite pedestal, to the very kind of uh, uppermost point, which is the, the sword, the tip of the sword that Richard holds aloft, it's about nine metres in, in total. So a, a pretty colossal example of equestrian uh, statuary. And is it actually um, visible to the public? Can you see it, um, or do you have to be uh, going into the into the domain of the house? You, you can see it as you walk uh, in the in the road that kind of runs alongside the palace, but you can't get close to it by a reason that the um, the kind of uh, security fences that have been installed outside Parliament basically cordon the whole precinct, Westminster precinct, off. So you can see it from a distance. If you've got a camera that has a good zoom, you can get a, a better view. But I think it's a good you know, 20, 30 metres uh, is the closest you can get to it today. OK, so it's um, it's, a, it's a Victorian statue of a medieval king. And uh, a lot of this, the conversation that's been going on around the world is about Victorian statues. Um, 
is the 19th century, the Victorian period in Britain, is that the the sort of the apogee of statuary commemorations? Uh, and is it actually uh, more specifically just the later 19th century that, uh, that that we get this massive interest in statues? Why? And is it unique to Britain or, or is it uh, is it a broader concept? I, I would say very much this, this is the age of statue building. Uh, academics who've worked on the 19th century speak of an age of statue or mania, a, a sort of craze for, for the creation of new statues. It does start early in the uh, in the sort of first half of the nineteenth century, but really kind of picks up in in the second half. So the the number of statues being created does does kind of uh, increase uh, in the latter part. Um, so this is the age of nationalism. Uh, states kind of pursuing um, state building projects, looking to forge new brands of, of of national identity in this age of nationalism, and in this context, kind of cultural fields. Uh, arts, literature, and so on are very much kind of central to what these states are doing. Uh, and as part of that, you know, we see statues springing up in capital cities you know, throughout the continent. So, uh, yes, it takes place in Britain, but it's a continental wide thing uh, throughout Europe um, as well. There are kind of specifics, there are, there are kind of uh, local peculiarities in particular nations, but the kind of the wider trend. I would say is, is consistently um, kind of prominent throughout throughout the continent across the 19th century. Okay, now a lot of the statues they put up were, um, for, for probably obvious reasons, were um, uh, heroes of the age, the, the colonial figures, the military figures of that period. Um, but there are there are some earlier ones, and, and Richard the First, a medieval statue. But are there many statues of medieval figures that were put up in this period, or is or is this a, a bit of an outlier? No, very much so. There's as, as part of this 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 uh, this trend of statue mania. There's a real fashion, a real interest in creating monuments to medieval figures, and that's that's continental wide too. So Charlemagne, for example, we see statues of him created in both France and Belgium. Uh, Joan of Arc is commemorated by uh, numerous statues in France, uh, and figures like Frederick Barbarossa have statues created uh, in their honour in in the German-speaking lands. So we can connect this on on one hand to a far wider 19th century interest um, in the Middle Ages, which kind of manifests itself in in other ways. So in Britain, for example, we get the novels of of Walter Scott, the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelites. And what we're seeing is a society that's kind of reaching toward the Middle Ages for a very particular reason. Uh, The 19th century, great, sees kind of great societal upheavals caused by uh, industrialization, for many, this this brings about kind of spiritual uh, anxieties, uh, and in this context, the Middle Ages is is kind of idealized as a simpler, more pious age, uh, as a kind of soothing antidote to the to the societal changes that industrialization is is bringing around. Um, You've you've touched on this just just in your last answer, but um, I mean many commentators have pointed out that the statues that we're talking about, the ones which are which are being discussed as, as whether they whether they should be still standing or not, they tell us more about nineteenth century values or Victorian values specifically if we're talking about Britain uh, than anything else. Is that is that a fair assessment? It's it's really about the people who put them up rather than the people they commemorate. Yeah, totally. So. Uh... When we look at certain examples of statues, we can see in some contexts that their creators did make very clear attempts to to use certain medieval sources or medieval traditions around the particular figure as inspiration. Um, But for the most part, what these 19th century statues tell us about, even if they're of Charlemagne or Joan of Arc or whichever other medieval figure, what they tell us about is 19th century values um, and ideas. 
So the statue, uh, our statue of Richard um, in London, uh, very much illustrates this um, quite nicely, I'd say. So when we think about contemporary responses to this statue, um, people who observed it at, or, or visited it at the Great Exhibition or, or in its permanent version um, from 1860, believed that it illustrated a number of ideas uh, that were very important to society at the time. So these would be things like devotion to Christianity, um, the moral principles of chivalry, uh, the importance, the strength of monarchical um, authority. So these were all things that mattered very greatly to, uh, in Britain at least, uh, Victorian society. And we can take one of these a bit uh, and look at it in a bit more detail, perhaps. So if we think about the religious connotations of the, the Richard statue uh, in London, um, what we're talking about is a statue created in an age uh, that scholars refer, sometimes refer to as an age of what's known as muscular um, Christianity. The idea sort of bound up with ideas in, of imperialism and so on, that upholding manliness uh, and the possession of physical strength was, was part of the duty uh, of all good Christian men. And Richard, our statue uh, in London, very much embodies this quite literally. So contemporaries comment on the fact that, you know, the, the figure of Richard has, has muscles that sort of bulge under his chainmail, very much kind of articulating um, this idea. And above all, uh, the statue is presented in the 19th century, um, as Richard was uh, himself more generally, as an icon of Englishness. And that's a presentation that doesn't really map on all that well to the real 12th century figure uh, at all. Okay, so um, so that handily links us into talking about the, the real 12th, uh, 12th century figure. Um, firstly, I suppose we should just is is the statue at all a likeness of the man? Do we know do we know much about what he would have looked like and in, and how far is uh, this statue representative of that? So I think there's a there's a funerary monument on his tomb um, in Fontevraud, if if I remember correctly, but that was created some years after his death. I think there might have been some discussion that Marochetti might have might have consulted that likeness when he was creating his statue. Um, but even if he did, it wouldn't necessarily bring us closer to what Richard actually looked like um, before his death anyway. Okay. Um, right. But uh, but we need to know who Richard was. We need to know the sort of the key points of his of his life and reign. So would you be able to just briefly sketch out the, the, the main things we need to know about? Of course. So this was a man who was born in Oxford uh, in 1157. And he was the third son of the incumbent King of England, um, and ruler of the Angevin Empire, Henry II. And this was an empire that encompassed about half of what we would today call um, France. So he wasn't just King of England. Uh, he had authority over this um, great continental empire uh, as well. So Richard spent his early years in England, uh, but then from 1172, he's active almost exclusively on the continent because in 1172, his father appoints him uh, Duke of Aquitaine. So from this point onwards, and basically for the rest of his life, the most dominant feature of Richard's life is warfare. He spends most of the rest of his life from this point on campaign. Fortunately for Richard, his two elder brothers both died before him and their father. So that meant that when Henry II died in 1189, it was Richard who was the successor. So Richard succeeds to be King of England and ruler of the Angevin lands. Even before his inauguration as King of England, though, in uh, 1189, Richard had been planning to go on crusade in response to the loss of Jerusalem to the forces of Saladin in uh, 1187. So between 1190 and 1192, Richard was away from the West, uh, participating in what historians call the Third Crusade. 
And it was this, above all, that kind of propels him towards legendary status because it was the Third Crusade that brought him into conflict with the, the legendary figure of Saladin. So the Third Crusade ends. Uh, the, the Christian forces uh, and Richard don't recover Jerusalem, but what they do is they kind of shore up the Christian presence in the Holy Land in the Near East, um, making a bridgehead uh, that kind of 13th century successors would use to try and recover Jerusalem. Richard leaves the Holy Land in 1192, uh, but on the way home uh, through uh, Austria, he's captured by an enemy. Um, and for the next uh, year, year and a bit, he's uh, held captive by, ultimately by the, the Emperor, Henry VI. And he's moved through various locations in Germany uh, while his subjects uh, back in his lands are raising the necessary ransom. That's finally raised. 1194, Richard is released. He comes back to his lands, um, briefly to England, but most of the rest of his life from 1194, when he's released, he's spent uh, on, on, on campaign um, in his continental lands. He's trying to re restore his position um, that he'd had before he left. Basically, while he was away, his, his younger brother, John, of Magna Carta fame, had been in cahoots with um, Richard's enemy, Philip II, King of France, undermined Richard's position in his lands. It's Richard's task when he's back to try and restore um, his authority in these lands. So it's in the context of this effort to recover his position, he's taking part in a siege in 1199 in his, his old duchy of Aquitaine. Um, unfortunately for him, he's struck by a crossbow um, and the wound turns gangrenous. Uh, and this takes place in 1199. Uh, and a week or so later, he, he dies. Um, that's, that's his life, so to speak. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. That's uh, that's a, a very concise uh, uh, summary of of the man's life. Now, one way to um, to try and uh, assess historical figures is to consider how they were viewed in the context of their own time. So, um, you've you've outlined there he was clearly a warlike figure and and uh, and martial skill, military prowess was something that I I, I think was uh, was looked on favourably at the time, certainly in the upper echelons of society. Um, I think he was a courageous man, or at least he was uh, he was he was seen to be courageous, um, but. He was also um, perhaps seen to be uh, avaricious or at least demanding in terms of, uh, of uh, the money that he required for his military endeavours. And perhaps he was seen as uh, more cruel than, uh, than, than, than other similar military figures. So um, are those things that, uh, that play into it? And, what, and how else was he seen uh, in, in, in his time? In, indeed. So he is a figure that even in his own lifetime evokes very strong reactions, indeed, both, both positive and negative. So exactly as you say, there are contemporaries, including his critics, who really emphasise his bravery, his abilities as a leader, his qualities as a fighter himself, as a man of war. Um, these are such that even in his own lifetime, his, his legend starts to develop. So um, he's known as the Lionheart um, while he's still alive. Um, this legend, the kind of kernel of it, comes into existence while he still lives. And then in the centuries after his death, uh, kind of evolves and, and, and develops. There is a sense among some contemporaries that sometimes he waged war in, in a way that kind of went beyond uh, normal normal levels. So as part of his efforts in Aquitaine, for example, um, in the 11, 1170s, uh, some of his opponents see him as acting in an overly brutal, cruel way. Uh, some critics write that he spends much of his time um, kind of chasing around the wives and daughters of his of his subjects. So hardly behaviour that's going to endear him to um, his kind of political subjects. 
And in terms of the, the kind of financial uh, issues you've, you've touched on, very much so. Contemporaries complain time and time again the, the financial demands he's placing on his subjects. First, to, to raise money to go on crusade, and then to raise funds to pay for the ransom that will um, see him released from the from the captivity of Henry the Henry the Sixth of Germany. So these are criticisms that we do see um, time and time again. And am I right in thinking that he did a pretty good job himself of sort of writing himself up and and making sure that uh, that people were aware of his uh, his um, uh, his success? I'd say so. So if we were to kind of think about this in modern terms, I think we're talking about an individual who kind of understood the value of good PR. He was someone who was kind of aware of the importance of of crafting a particular image. So he's someone who, um, when he departed on crusade, took an artifact, a sword that was regarded to be Excalibur with him. Uh, He's someone who um, was happy to um, engage with his enemies via the the kind of, we call it the kind of column sheets of his day through kind of political songs, the kind of aristocratic poems that he has composed in in criticism of particular enemies and so on. Um, So I think he's very much conscious that uh, there, there are mechanisms for him to craft a particular image of himself for, for his, for the benefit of his contemporaries. Now, thinking about how we uh, view Richard today, um, obviously a lot of this uh, this shiny example of, of kingship type stuff has come down to us. It's been challenged, and and uh, and a lot of people have uh, have have critiqued that. But um, but there's still some sort of uh, glow or aura that uh, that surrounds him for a lot of people, which is which is an interesting thing when you think about uh, his role in the Crusades and how the Crusades should be seen, um, perhaps today, obviously. Uh, that, that clearly very problematic for us to, to 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 take a view on that and to understand it. So, um, how how do you think uh, his role in the Crusades and his particular activities, perhaps, at, uh, uh, in terms of what he did to uh, uh, um, uh, some hostages, some Muslim hostages, how should that um, sort of nuance our understanding of of how we should see this? So, yeah, this 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 stems back to a particular incident. Um, that took place on the Third Crusade. So the main kind of um, military objective of the Third Crusade is the Siege of Acre. So a siege is kind of going on for for years, even before Richard and the other Third Crusaders arrive. Um, So Richard arrives in June 1191, and he and the the fellow um, uh, Christians taking part in the siege capture the city in July 1191. In the process of, of taking the city, they capture several thousand hostages, some reports say around 3,000 Muslim hostages. And in the period afterwards, these hostages basically become bargaining chips in this negotiation between Richard and his fellow crusading uh, leaders and um, Saladin. So the outcome was that even though an agreement seemed to have been reached with Saladin, uh, it wasn't actually acted upon. Richard sees that uh, Saladin's deadline to fulfill certain promises had expired. So uh, on the 20th of August, he orders these hostages to be marched out of the city, um, kind of placed in front of the um, Muslim camp and executed um, to a man. Again, this comes down to the question of perspective. Uh, Richard himself, um, in a letter he wrote in October 1191 and and sent home, uh, he said this was quite proper. Saladin had defaulted on his agreement, therefore it was completely within my rights and the right of uh, all of us crusaders to order the deaths of these Um, hostages. 
What's crucial, though, is I think, as we saw with some of uh, Richard's activities in Aquitaine earlier in his career, there were at least some contemporaries who believed that this was beyond the pale, this exceeded uh, normal standards. On the one hand, we have um, Islamic chroniclers, so biographers of Saladin, who you know we might expect uh, see this as a barbarous, um, treacherous act. But there are Christian um, there are Christian writers who um, some kind of outright decry it. Others are very anxious to kind of shift blame away from Richard, saying that this wasn't Richard's fault, it was Saladin's fault for failing to follow through uh, on uh, the agreement. Um, in terms of uh, where this fits in kind of collective understanding of uh, and, and memorialization of Richard today, it's very hard to, to say. I would say almost for the most part, this this fade, this kind of um, event uh, is almost kind of completely uh, overlooked when we when we think about Richard and what comes to the fore, what you know is embodied in this statue at Westminster, is the kind of glorious heroic, um, moralistic, chivalrous uh, figure. So there's almost a kind of collective amnesia to put to one side the bits that don't fit that narrative, and instead focus on the the, the aspects, the qualities that kind of match up to it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Richard spends the most of his political career in France. Famously, of his 10 years as King of England, he spends about six months in England. So by no means is he kind of making great contributions to England's administrative constitutional um, development. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So there's that specific incident, which um, uh, in some, in the eyes of some contemporary commentators was was going beyond the pale of, of uh, appropriate action. But in terms of the of the wider picture of the Crusades, Richard, Richard the, the Lionheart, um, uh, embraced the Crusades. He appears to have, you know, been very enthusiastic to do it, and and you know, he had alacrity to to get on Crusade as soon as he was able. And the Crusades generally um, are, are, 
you know, clearly that's that's something that in the in the in our modern situation we have to we have to treat um, you know very carefully. Um, and I suppose one of the the simplest, the most simplistic reading of the Crusades is that it's a religious conflict and, and Christian warriors going to, to to win back the Holy Land. But um, there is there is a reading uh, which I hope I'm not um, uh, misquoting it, but Professor Geraldine Heng, who's written a lot on on racism in uh, in 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 the medieval world, um, I think is suggesting that actually we should see the Crusades as a, as a racist endeavor, uh, and uh, and that takes us into a whole different paradigm, particularly when we're talking about uh, the, the statues of the other statues we're on. We've, we've been discussing which uh, a lot of the of the discussions there are based on uh, on racism and questions of racism and slavery. So so um, so give me a give me a view on that as to where we should. Uh, where, how we should understand that. Okay, so I think um, you're exactly right to kind of flag up this very important work by um, Professor Hain. I, I, I regard this, you know, as really important um, work, a really important contribution to, you know, a subject that needs to be treated uh, very carefully. So for me, one of the reasons why I think um, Geraldine Hain's work is so important is because to a large degree, it, it encourages us to turn the focus not necessarily directly onto what people did or did think in the Middle Ages. Um, that's part of it. But um, she asks us to kind of turn the focus on how modern historians have kind of gone about uh, approaching this topic um, as well. So an argument that she makes that I actually, you know, when I reflect on on what I see in, in medieval sources and so on, uh, an argument that I find very convincing is that um, a form of racism did exist in the Middle Ages but that modern historians, modern scholars writing about the Middle Ages have been very um, unwilling uh, to refer to it uh, in those terms. So she says that you know, historians have used euphemisms essentially like pre-modern chauvinism, um, xenophobia, to describe what actually we should, we should call um, racism. So it's clear from you know, the start of you know, human history, humans have noted differences um, between different groups, and in some contexts, those differences have have given grounds for um, discrimination uh, in in particular contexts. Um, so, what um, Professor Heng points out is that um, while in the Middle Ages the, the, the kind of key grounds for discrimination were indeed religion and religious difference, um, in some contexts um, those differences included kind of physical differences as well. So she calls it a kind of a biopolitical uh, aspect to to differentiation. So in other words, particularly hated groups were ascribed particular um, physical characteristics as as part of the process of discriminating against them. So yeah, in brief, um, I think we should should speak of racism in the Middle Ages. Uh, Racial difference was indeed construed uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily map directly onto how it's construed today. Um, But what Professor Heng would say is that if we use a different word, if we use a word or a term other than racism, arguably what we're doing is an injustice both to the period, to the Middle Ages, um, and our own conversation about the relevance of that period to our own modern day discussions uh, on race. 
Hmm. And I suppose um, reading her book, she makes she she goes into a lot of detail about uh, anti-Semitic um, uh, activities and, and a general sense of anti-Semitism across uh, the medieval period. And I suppose then uh, that would uh, make us wonder about statues of the likes of uh, Henry the Third or Edward the First, who um, whose actions were um, avowedly anti-Semitic. I mean, Edward the First expelled. The, the Jews from uh, from England in in twelve ninety, for instance. So so, um, so that that puts us into a, a whole different sphere of uh, of, uh, of conversation, I suppose. Very much so, but one that still deserves the same same level of attention and, and care. Um, I would say so. Yeah, historians over the years, um, over the centuries, have kind of talked about English history as a kind of you know, uh, a march uh, so, uh, at the rise of the English state and the march towards bureaucracy and the kind of administrative structure and so on. And what happens in the 13th century with the increasing discrimination and uh, expulsion of the Jews from England in 1190 doesn't really figure in that um, in that kind of wider picture of, of you know, England's triumphal um, administrative development. Um, but if we're going to have a kind of wider cultural reckoning um, and think about the suitability of, of statues from the 19th century or, or whenever uh, today, um, figures who have been involved in anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic acts, either ordering them or kind of carrying them out. Uh, obviously, very much they should be part of this conversation about whether they whether they, whether they still merit their place in our cities, our, our towns today. Now, um, so going back a bit, though, in terms of, uh, of of going back to the Richard statue, that was that was set up in in the Victorian period in the, in eighteen sixty. So. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, in a completely different um, sphere of understanding uh, and, and I guess moral compass. But if I if I read things rightly, and according to um, to the entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Professor John Gillingham, um, Richard wasn't exactly flavour of the month, at least in academic circles. In in that period, he was seen as you know this sort of uh, the, the king who who left his left his English realm and and uh, and basically um, just uh, tried to get as much money out of out of the people as he could. So um, so why? Why then would he have been uh, a figure that, uh, suitable for commemoration at that stage? Well, you're exactly right. Just as Richard had supporters and critics in the 12th century, so too uh, the same kind of thing we see in the 19th century. So on the one hand, through um, things like the, the, the novels of, of Walter Scott, Richard is very much held up as a, as a kind of Victorian uh, hero. Um, on the other hand, we get uh, a large number of, of commentators, including academic scholars of the period, um, who, as you say, kind of take a very different view of Richard and his kind of contribution to um, English history. So uh, this is the age, again, where, where historians, or a number of them are interested in kind of England's constitutional development. Um, so people like Bishop William Stubbs, who you know, edited important sources and, and wrote important histories of, uh, of English history, um, regarding, uh, regard Richard as a very bad king, exactly the same, because he neglected England, and because he kind of taxed England uh, uh, to the seams in order to raise money for his adventures. So he's seen as kind of neglecting England uh, so that he can go off on, on, on adventure, um, on crusade. The key point is that this, again, tells us more about 19th century expectations than the 12th century. You know, observers in the 12th century weren't criticizing Richard for, for going on crusade. They were, they were praising him for it. This was seen to be part of the duty of a, of a Christian rule at that point. Um, so you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, the display of Marachetti's statue at the Great Exhibition in 1851 kind of makes waves. This campaign takes shape for the, for the permanent version um, for the Houses of Parliament 
you know, as as we discussed, kind of successfully results in the in the creation of that in 1860. But in that period, in the 1850s, there's considerable uh, opposition to the idea of installing a statue of Richard uh, in that place. And some of the opponents are kind of channeling the spirit of Bishop Stubb, saying he was a bad king, he was uh, uh, he was bad for England, he neglected his kingdom. Um, and I guess the the real explanation for why actually the, the campaign was successful and why the statue was created um, is probably less to do with particular perceptions of Richard um, among people like Stubbs, people who shared his view, than with the fact that Marochetti, um, he knew the right people. Um, so what happened is key members of the political establishment, all the way up to Victoria and Albert herself, are a supporter of his, and they contribute kind of um, backing and money uh, to, to finance the project for the bronze version. Um, and it's that that ultimately kind of results in, in the permanent version being created. So that says something about, you know, Victorian society to us uh, as well. And yet he was he was no um, a defender of parliament or parliamentary values, wasn't he? Richard wouldn't be, you know, a, a king that would be lauded uh, in, in Westminster particularly. Very much so. So, I mean, parliament is only really coming into a more recognisable shape later in the 13th century. Um, John Maddicott has, very, has, a, has a book on this talking about the development of the English parliament. But no, I mean, famously, you know, Richard spends the most of his political career in France. Famously, of his ten years as King of England, he spends about six months in England. So, by no means is he kind of making great contributions to you know, England's administrative, constitutional um, development. So, um, just just thinking about uh, sort of going back towards where we started um, uh, and Richard's commemoration, and uh, and and the fact you know the conversation we just had does uh, suggest that some questions uh, should be raised or could be raised about uh, about whether he is suitable be to be commemorated in this way, given uh, the conversations going on elsewhere. Why do you think that um, statues of medieval figures are seemingly outside of this conversation, uh, or are they? Maybe I've just missed it, but but for me, I, I haven't seen too much conversation about them. No, no, I, ha- I haven't either. I think there are probably a, a number of factors that help might help us to explain this. On the one hand, potentially the same kind of cultural dynamic that we've talked about in relation to the 19th century, this this tendency to regard the Middle Ages as a kind of safe simpler time to associate it more with you know qualities like chivalry uh, moral values rather than um, some of the some of the more kind of complex issues that we've started to talk about um, I think there's this wider issue that um, uh, Gerald Geraldine Hang would uh, her work really might help us to kind of push through namely this this um, this fact that pre-modern um, discrimination racism in the middle ages isn't seen in the same kind of continuum as subjects like slavery, colonialism, um, imperialism. Whereas if we were to have a conversation about uh, the impact of these of these subjects, like the Crusades, the treatment of Jews in the Middle Ages, we might be raising some of the very same issues that are kind of so uh, vital in our own conversations about statues now, um, you know, statues of, of more modern figures involved in the slave trade and so on. Um, but I think, yeah, on the on the whole, there's there's no real appetite among um, the public of, of any nation, as far as I can see, to to start this task of bringing these you know these distant figures from the Middle Ages into a more modern discussion, um, debating how far they still match up to you know the values and, and aspirations that we would like to think you know you know characterize our 21st century society. 
So just specifically on that then, how far do you think that Richard I um, fulfills that test? How far does he map out to the values that we uh, that we ascribe in the 21st century? One just has to look at the contemporary responses to the to the execution of the um, uh, of the Muslim prisoners at Acre to see you know this is this is a this is a this is an event that you know few people would really want to you know associate themselves with. This is an event that I don't think kind of matches up to the standards of behaviour um, today. So there's the the role that he plays in the Third Crusade. Um, but to kind of take the 19th century iterations of Richard, from the very start, um, Richard, despite the kind of incongruity uh, and, and, and the fact that it kind of, you know, doesn't really map onto the 12th century reality, from the very start, um, Marachetti's statue is believed to embody an icon of Englishness, of English national identity. Um, there's no kind of criticism on these grounds in the 19th century, but if we were to have a conversation about Richard in the 21st century, um, what we might well discuss is whether an icon of Englishness fully encapsulates the, the, the ideas, the values of all the peoples uh, of Britain and Ireland who are represented at Westminster. Um, so, I mean, to, to some degree, I, I, I see this, this question from the perspective of someone who isn't English. Um, and I can see the, the, the case for arguing actually an icon of Englishness in the home of British uh, democracy might not be all that in keeping with you know, the ideas of everyone uh, to whom that building um, is important uh, today. Yeah, no, that's that is a very interesting point. I just sort of uh, summing up, I suppose, towards the end. Um, are there any other um, statues or, or medieval figures that uh, would fall within the same uh, sort of purview as this conversation we're having? I know there's a, there's a conversation going on in in the states about um, the French King Louis the Ninth um, and the statue uh, in in the city that uh, is named after him, Saint Louis. Um, where, where, where should we uh, where should we see that conversation going? I, th- I really think that for the most part the the statues of, of of medieval figures really haven't become part of this conversation. Um, so yeah, the the statue of Louis the Ninth in um, in Missouri is one. I think there was um, in in June, as as uh, in the aftermath of the the um, events in Bristol and the removal of the Colston statue, um, there was one kind of stray um, incident where a statue of Robert the Bruce at Bannockburn was was defaced. Uh, I don't think there have been any kind of real explanations about what was going on there as yet. Um, but for the most part, no, I think these the, the medieval figures have been, you know, left uh, untouched, um, haven't become part of, of the conversation as, as far as I've seen. Um, that's not to say that they won't. That's not to say that they shouldn't. Um, it may well be that, you know, sooner rather than later, if um, we are to have a kind of wider cultural conversation about the importance to uh, the continued relevance of these figures, um, it might well be that the, some of these medieval figures start to come under the microscope. Fascinating. Um, Dr. Simon John, thank you very much. That was a very interesting discussion. Are there any other points that um, that uh, we should have raised that you think are, are relevant? Any any aspects that we haven't considered? Here? I would just maybe uh, end with a, what, what I would say is, uh, it might start out as a kind of historical perspective, it might sort of transmogrify along the way into a kind of call to arms, but we'll see anyway. Um, I mean, what I would say is someone who's looked at um, the creation and um, kind of destruction of some statues in the 19th century um, is that from the very start, 
the act of creating a statue is a political, it's a symbolic act. And above all, it's designed to create a particular group identity among you know, a particular set of people. It's designed to bring a group together. So in instances like those we're seeing recently, particular statues have caused controversy. Um, the real debate behind this is the fact that uh, these statues of past figures, they're evoking history in a way that kind of causes division in the present. And that division ultimately stems from the fact people have different interpretations of, of the past. What history will tell us is that, yeah, when such examples arise, when uh, kind of controversial statues um, uh, become part of a wider conversation, it's only right that the, the societies responsible for those statues have a conversation about, you know, do, do these artifacts still merit their status um, as cultural symbols? So if we come back to our, our kind of case study um, of Richard I, uh, his, his statue at, at Parliament, uh, I think it's only natural that we as society uh, might want to ask whether this 19th century statue of a 12th century figure kind of fully matches up to, you know, what we hold to be dear about our own 21st century society uh, today. So that's, yeah, that's all I say by kind of way of conclusion, perhaps kind of moving towards, as I say, a call to arms for kind of wider action. Well, well, thank you very much. That's a, it's a very timely discussion, a very timely observation at the end there. And uh, and perhaps it will lead to to some further conversations amongst medievalists or amongst the, the, the public at large. So uh, Dr. Simon John from uh, Swansea University, um, uh, thank you very much for your time. And I should mention you've, uh, you've, you've written a book on Godfrey of Bouillon uh, and you're carrying out your your statues project now is that still ongoing or have you sort of is that you're you're in the thick of it right now in the thick of it yeah so now that the libraries uh, are open here i can yeah carry on with that project so looking a bit more about the great exhibition uh the display of richard the first the, the first version of uh the richard the first statue there as a kind of wider insight into yeah victorian values and expectations that was dr simon john talking to dave musgrove you can find out more about the debate about statues on our website at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Louise Wilkinson will be speaking about Eleanor de Montfort. <laughs>